Good morning. You can take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn along with me to the book of Romans. We're resuming our study in this series on Romans that we only had just begun. Romans chapter 1. Now, it's been a minute since we were last in this series. In fact, the last sermon in this series that I preached was the Sunday after Thanksgiving, which seems like a lifetime ago. So I don't expect you to remember all that we have talked about. And uh, maybe you are struggling to reorient yourself with this book. So let me remind you a little bit about this great letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans and about where we've been so far. The title for the series is Romans, God's Gospel, From Guilt to Grace to Gratitude. And those three words, guilt, grace, and gratitude, help to frame the content of this letter and give us a bit of an outline. And so as we've looked at this together, we've seen that guilt refers to the guilt of our sin, our guilt before God. And that is covered in chapters 1 through 3, where Paul, like an effective prosecuting attorney, reminds us that we all are guilty before God in our natural condition. And then grace, the grace of God in salvation, the good news of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. That comes in chapters 4 through 11. And then finally, gratitude, our response to God's grace and His covering of our guilt is gratitude. Gratitude that motivates us to worship and serve the Lord with gladness. Chapters 12 through 16. From guilt to grace to gratitude. So the gospel is at the center of the book of Romans. What Paul calls the gospel of God in the very first verse of this book. The gospel of God. So far in chapter 1, Paul has introduced himself to his readers since most of them had never met him. Paul had never been to Rome and he therefore had no direct part in the founding of the church that existed there in that great city. So Paul spills no small bit of ink in introducing himself in verses five, sorry, verses one through seven of chapter one. Paul was dictating this letter to his assistant named Tertius, his amanuensis or secretary. We read of that in chapter 16 and verse 22, where the amanuensis, Tertius, pokes his head in, as it were, and says, Hello, guys, I'm here too. And I'm writing down everything that Paul tells me to write down. Paul is writing this letter probably from the city of Corinth in Greece and probably around A.D. 57 during his third missionary journey just before his return to Jerusalem. Paul is ultimately hoping to go to Spain to preach the gospel, continue his missionary efforts there. But on his way from Jerusalem to Spain, he hopes to visit his brothers and sisters there in Rome. And Paul expresses his great desire to see these Christians in Rome in verses 8 through 17. Verse 15 is a good indication of that. He says in verse 15, So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
But before he gets to Rome, he must first go to Jerusalem. So in the meantime, before he can visit Rome in person, this letter is going to have to suffice. So why did Paul write this letter? What was going on in the church at Rome that Paul felt the need to insert himself and speak to these issues and help the church of Rome before he could arrive? Well, the churches of Rome had gone through some significant changes. They had undergone a significant demographic shift, for starters. You see, less than 10 years earlier, in 49 AD, under Roman Emperor Claudius, a large number of Jews were expelled from Rome, an event which is mentioned historically in Acts 18.2, and historians agree that this actually happened. Among those who were expelled From Rome were the Jews Aquila and Priscilla, who were refugees from Rome and set themselves up in Corinth as tent makers. And that is where Paul met them. Paul, a fellow Christian and tent maker and Jew, met them and stayed with them there in Corinth. And so Aquila and Priscilla eventually returned to Rome and Paul greets them in this letter. They are not still in Corinth, where Paul is. They've returned to Rome by this time. And so Paul takes the opportunity to send his greetings to his good friends and ministry partners, Priscilla and Aquila. Romans 16, 3 and 4 says, Greet Prisca, or Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Now, this expulsion of the Jews from Rome resulted in what was likely a significant power shift in the church at Rome. The church at Rome went from being majority Jewish to being majority Gentile. It went from being led primarily by Jewish Christians to being led primarily by Gentile Christians. And now this turns out to be a significant historical detail, which is helpful for understanding the local situation to which Paul writes. The Gentile believers there needed to better understand and better appreciate the Jewish roots of their faith and give honor to their Jewish brothers and sisters in the Lord. There are at least four aims or goals that the apostle had in writing this letter. And these serve as four great goals for us as well as we study this letter together. So let me share those with you. By the way, I've included these four goals or aims In the notes, this is all review from the first message that I preached on Romans. And so the first goal, that was a goal for the Apostle Paul, and it should be a goal for us as well as we study it together, is the goal of gospel-grounded unity. That is that the church would be in right relationship with each other, a relationship founded upon and rooted in the gospel. Gospel Gospel-grounded unity. That whatever things might divide us and separate us in the world shouldn't divide and separate us in the church. For Christ has united us together and we are in right relationship with Him and therefore right relationship with one another. So the goal of gospel-grounded unity. Then we see the goal of gospel-centered orthodoxy. Right believing. Right beliefs. Paul wanted the church at Rome to have the right beliefs, to believe The truth about the gospel, the truth about God, the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth about the church. He wants them to believe rightly. Then we see, thirdly, the goal of gospel-informed orthopraxy. Right conduct, right living. Right conduct and right living that flows from right beliefs, right convictions. 
And then finally, the goal of gospel-fueled doxology, right worship, right response to God, gospel-informed and gospel-fueled worship. And so what's clear from this is that the gospel is at the center of this letter. And because Jesus is at the center of the gospel, Jesus is at the center of this letter as well. Now, if you haven't ever heard me explain all that, you weren't here maybe for that first message, or if you've understandably forgotten some of that and want a refresher, I encourage you to go back and listen to that first message I preached in this series back on October 15th, where I break out each of these purposes further and explain them. I've included a link to that message at the bottom of the sermon notes page page in the uh, Church Center app for your convenience. I would ask that you please don't click on that right now. Don't click on the sermon link right now because I really don't want to compete with myself for your attention. Although maybe some of you are good enough, you can listen to two sermons at once. But uh, let's not try it. Now in verses 16 and 17, of chapter 1, Paul, having expressed his eagerness to visit these Roman Christians and be with them and see them face to face and preach the gospel in their midst, he now declares his confidence in the gospel, which is the theme of Romans, the gospel of God. He says this in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God is being revealed. God's righteous standard of holiness, a standard fulfilled and embodied by Jesus, God's Son, who died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, a sacrifice for sinners. And now God's righteousness is given, credited as a gift and received by faith in Jesus Christ to all those who will believe. So the gospel reveals God's righteousness. But God's righteousness revealed in the gospel is not the only thing that God is revealing in these days. He's not only revealing His righteousness in the gospel, He's also revealing His wrath. Simultaneously, in the world, God is revealing His gospel and He's revealing His wrath. That's what our text tells us this morning. Our text in verses 18 through 25. Now we're going to focus our attention this morning just on verses 24 and 25. I've already covered verses 18 through 23 in previous messages. But to set the context a little bit, remind you of where we've been And to set the context for our text this morning, I want to read from verses 18 through 25 where Paul reveals that God is revealing His wrath in the world today against sin and rebellion. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And again, we'll focus our attention this morning just on verses 24 and 25. But we'll begin reading Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened professing to be wise 
they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And all God's people said, let's pray together and ask for God's help to understand these things. Heavenly Father, we realize you are revealing your righteousness through the gospel and you are revealing your wrath to the world simultaneously. I pray, Lord, that we would be alert to what you have revealed. Lord, make us understand it. Help us. We know these things are in large degree beyond us and it takes a move of your spirit to really drive them home and and bring them to life in our hearts and minds. And so we're asking you to do that, Spirit of God. We invite you to reveal to us what we need to know and how we need to change. Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts closer to you, grow us in love for you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This morning we're going to talk about warnings. Warning signs. Warning signs are helpful. They can save your life. In some places in the world today, there are minefields from wars gone by. And though the war is over, the mine is still active and the minefield is still a danger. And so they put up fences and they put up signs and they say, warning, you're entering a minefield. Your next step could be your last. Warning signs save lives. If you go to the beach, sometimes if the weather's not right, there'll be warning signs not to enter the water. There'll be red flags showing you that it's not safe because of the currents or because of the size of the waves. Warning signs save lives. And that's what we see in our text this morning. Divine warning signs that are intended to save your life and save your soul. This morning we're going to see four warnings to keep us from the tragic consequence of idolatry. Four divine warnings to help keep us from the tragic consequence of idolatry. Warning number one. What we believe about God truly matters. What we believe about God truly matters. We see this in the very first word of verse 24. Therefore... Therefore, in verse 24, Paul is linking what he has said before with what he is about to say. As you've probably heard before, the important thing about a therefore is to find out what it's there for, right? That's a good hermeneutical principle. When you see a therefore, you've got to find out what it's there for. In this case, the therefore is referring to what Paul has just laid out in verse 18 through 23. The truth that God has so revealed himself to all people everywhere through the created world that he has made that they are without excuse. But men in their sin and rebellion have suppressed this truth. Mankind in his sin and rebellion has suppressed this truth in his unrighteousness. 
and rejected it. Look with me at verses 20 through 23. Let's remind ourselves what's here. And again, this is, this is what Paul has just referenced, and this is what is packed into that therefore. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures." So this, therefore, in verse 24, is connecting what Paul is about to say with what has just come before. And what Paul is about to say in verse 24 is tied to verses 20 through 23. He's about to say that there are tragic consequences for the rejection of God's clear self-revelation in creation. There are tragic consequences for rejecting God's truth for suppressing that truth, for holding it down, refusing to listen to it, refusing to see the evidence, there are tragic consequences for rejecting God's truth revealed in creation. Tragic consequences. Life-altering consequences. Life-damaging consequences. Life-ruining consequences. Even life-ending consequences. And yes, even eternal soul consequences the point is this what we believe about god really matters what we believe about god about our place in the universe about who god is and what he wants from us all really matters and it matters profoundly it matters eternally the truth is we're all theologians Some people view theology as a useless exercise. Theology is just something that old, privileged white men do in their ivory towers. Or they view it as a hobby that only some people engage in, something that only poets and philosophers are interested in. The reality is we are all theologians. Every last one of us, every person who has ever lived is a theologian. Because we all believe something about God. And that, by definition, makes us a theologian. Even if all we believe about God is that He doesn't exist, that's still a theology of a sort. It's still a belief system. The truth is, what we believe about God really matters, and the Bible teaches us that it matters profoundly and that it matters eternally. In the very first sentence of his great book, The Attributes of God, A.W. Tozer wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I would venture a guess that very few of us think that's the most important thing about us, but it truly is the most important thing about us. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. We live in a society that thinks the most important thing about us is our identity, who we are. But that is putting the cart before the horse. The most important thing about us is not our identity, who am I, but God's identity, who is He? 
What has he revealed to us about himself? What does he want from us? If we're ever going to rightly understand our identity, we must first understand God's identity, for he is the one who made us. Now, I love art in most of its forms. And I love learning about art. I love learning who the artist was, what their background was, what were their influences, what were they trying to communicate in their art, what are some of the techniques they used, what are some of the themes that carry across over the body of work that they made. Understanding the artist better can help unlock the meaning of their art. So it is with us. We as human beings are God's work of art. And we will better understand ourselves only when we begin with the master artist who made us, who created us. If we ignore the artist who made us, we will misunderstand and misinterpret that which he has made. It all begins with God, and what we believe about God really matters, and it matters for eternity. So take heed, warning, what you believe about God really matters. It's not trivial. It matters, and it matters for eternity. So what do you believe about God? When you think about God, what comes to mind? That is the most important thing about you. Second warning. Abandoning God leads to God abandoning you to your sins. If you abandon God, a belief in God, the truth as God has revealed Himself in the created world around us, if you abandon God, God will abandon you. First part of verse 24, Therefore God gave them over. I don't know if there is a more devastating, terrifying statement in all the Bible than this. God gave them over. The reality of this phrase is as tragic as it is terrifying. God gave them over. This phrase is important. In fact, Paul repeats it three times in this passage. He says it here in verse 24. He'll say it again in verse 26. He'll say it a third time in verse 28. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. But what does it mean? The phrase God gave them over is a phrase that is rich with Old Testament significance. In the Old Testament, God is said to take Israel's enemies and give them over, hand them over to Israel in defeat. In other contexts, because of Israel's sin and continued disobedience, God sometimes gave Israel over to her enemies. In both cases, there is a judicial divine action being taken with significant consequences. 
Here, the phrase God gave them over is being used in reference to God giving over those who have rejected his self-revelation that he has made evident to all so that they are without excuse. He gives them over. Those who reject God and rebel against God as they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, God gives them over to the lusts of their heart. What does that mean? Well, the ancient church father, Chrysostom, gives some helpful instruction here. He says that God hands them over by withdrawing His restraining influence. And so God permits them to go their own way, delving deeper and deeper into their own unrestrained depravity. It's a kind of divine judicial abandonment in which God lets sinners follow the course of their own sinful lusts and desires. God removes the restraints of His common grace, and He lets the depravity of the human heart chart its own course, go its own way, unfettered and unbridled by God's restraining hand. Now, I want to be clear here. It's not that God causes them to sin. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God is not the author of sin. No, God doesn't cause them to sin. Rather, God merely lets them go their own way. God gives them over to themselves. God lets them be led around by their own sinful desires. They gave up on God, so God gives up on them. They abandon God, and so God abandons them to their sin. There's a parallel passage to this in Ephesians, and I want you to turn there. Just keep your place in Romans. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul says something very similar. Ephesians 4.17 Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles, that is, as the unbelievers also walk. Don't live like the unbelievers live. How do they live? He says, In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous, having given themselves over. They gave themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Here in Ephesians, these unbelievers have clearly chosen the path for themselves. They've gone all in on sin and rebellion and sensuality. In Ephesians, they give themselves over to sin. In Romans, God actively gives them over to themselves to fulfill their own lusts and evil desires. The divine judicial abandonment that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1, now back to Romans 1, is an outworking of God's wrath, which is even now being revealed against sin. 
Romans 1.18, look with me there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Just as God reveals His righteousness through the gospel and drawing people to Himself and offering them mercy in verse 17, even so God reveals His wrath in verse 18 through giving people over to their own sin when they have repeatedly rejected Him and suppressed His truth in their own unrighteousness. C.S. Lewis observed that there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who say to God, Thy will be done. And then there are those to whom God says, All right, Thy will be done. Friends, you don't want to be numbered among that latter category. For God to speak over you and say, Your will be done. Go your own way. Do your own thing. You want freedom from me? You got it. To be abandoned by God, to be given over to your sins, to be handed over and led around by your own depravity and hatred of the truth? It may seem like freedom, but it's slavery. Slavery to your own lusts. Slavery to your own depravity. Slavery to your own broken thinking. And it's a death sentence. Warning. Third warning. Greater sin leads to greater impurity, which leads to greater dishonor. Verse 24 again, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. I want you to know that there's a kind of progression here. We might rather say a regression. They reject the truth that God has made evident to all about Himself, suppressing this truth and unrighteousness, which leads God to give them over to their own lusts, letting them go their own way, leaving them to their own devices. Their lust leads them to impurity, which leads them ultimately to dishonor, to shame. This is a downward spiral of unfettered depravity. God's judicial abandonment of them leads them to greater and greater sin, which leads them to greater and greater impurity, which leads them to greater and greater dishonor and shame. God gives them over in the lusts of their hearts. The human heart, apart from the regenerative, restorative work of God, is sinful and depraved. That's because of the fall. It's because of the curse of sin. It's because we are born in Adam. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart, the human heart, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can plumb the depths of the depravity of mankind apart from the grace of God? Is there any limit of mankind's wickedness and evil, of their shame and dishonor, of their willingness to treat others with disrespect and unkindness and 
the worst forms of cruelty to use the weak and the helpless to take advantage of those who can't protect themselves. This is all that the human heart is capable of. And all the more when God gives them over. Jesus affirmed the realities of the human heart. The fact that the heart is the problem. It's not about environment or education. If we can just give mankind the right environment, if we can just give mankind the right education, then mankind will improve. Mankind will get better. Mankind will stop having wars and crime will decrease and all these things. Yet the reality is that the problem is not the environment. The problem is not a lack of education. The problem resides much closer to home. It's in the human heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, He says the things that proceed out of the mouth, what we say comes from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. Our greatest need, as important as these things are, our greatest need is not a better environment. Our greatest need is not more education. Our greatest need is a new heart. That's what we need. That's what the world needs. That's what our country needs. Not a new president. A new heart. This giving over to the lusts of their hearts Paul says, results in impurity. The word impurity refers to that which is unclean, that which is dirty, that which is foul or filthy. That which is decomposing. It's often used in reference to sexual sin and particularly those sexual sins which are unnatural and not in accord with God's designs and intentions for His creatures. And as we'll see next week, that is primarily what Paul has in view here. This downward spiral into greater and greater uncleanness results in greater and greater dishonor, greater and greater shame. The dishonor here in view has particular reference to the body. Those who are on this path toward abandonment that leads to impurity, that results in shame and dishonor. They do things to and with their bodies that bring dishonor and shame to them. Men and women were created in God's image and according to God's likeness. We are image bearers as human beings. Even after the fall, we still bear God's image, though that image is marred by sin and the curse. But when we use our bodies in ways not designed by God, in ways that are unnatural, in ways contrary to God's design and intentions, we bring shame and dishonor to our bodies which are supposed to reflect God's image, which are supposed to bring honor and glory to God who made us, which in turn causes us to have a, a measure of that honor and glory as well. Since we are operating as we should, we are functioning as we should, as His image bearers, reflecting His glory back to Him. But not for those who are on this path. 
They fail to honor God, and so God gives them over, leading them to dishonor their bodies, which causes them to bring shame upon themselves. Dishonoring God leads to dishonorable ways of living, and dishonorable ways of living results in shame. We'll talk more about that next week. The punishment for their sins is that God hands them over to their sins. You see, the punishment is built in to the offense. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and now God gives them over to more unreservedly walk the path of unrighteousness that they have chosen. They've wanted to be free of God, of their Creator, to whom they are accountable. And God says, you want freedom from me? Fine, go ahead, have at it. And it only leads to greater and greater sin, greater and greater uncleanness, greater and greater shame, and ultimately leads to eternal shame. Which brings us to the final warning. Warning, fourthly, This tragic downward spiral all begins with idolatry. Begins with idolatry, which means the the good news is you can cut it off at the top of the spiral by turning from idolatry and believing in the one true God who made us in His image. Romans 1.25 for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now verse 25 is really a restatement of verses 22 and 23. Look there. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, swapped, traded the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This divine, judicial abandonment by God has come because of their rejection of the truth and of their embracing of idolatry. Their hearts ran after other gods. Rejecting the true God, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, they embraced every other kind of God you can imagine. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and chose to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. God abandons those who have abandoned him for other gods. Let's talk just a little bit for a few moments about idolatry. We tend to think about idolatry as being something confined to worshiping an idol of stone or of wood or of iron. And while idolatry certainly includes that, it also includes every kind of false religion, every kind of false belief system raised up in opposition to God and the truth He has revealed in creation, in His Word, and in His Son, Jesus. Idolatry is worshiping and serving anything other than the Creator who made us. That's what idolatry is. Worshiping and serving anything other than the Creator who made us. Now we are creatures who were made to worship. God made us to worship. That's part of what it means to be an image bearer, to be made in the image of God. It means that we're going to be a worshiping people. God made us worshipers because He made us to worship Him. But sin has twisted that. It's corrupted it. It's turned it in on itself so that it is twisted 
and misshapen. And so instead of worshiping God, we look for other things to worship. And our hearts are constantly on the roam, looking for other things to worship. Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory, pumping out idols day after day after day after day after day. Constantly on the prowl, looking for something new to worship, something new to serve, something new to devote ourselves to. We are creatures who are made to worship. We are made to worship God, but after the fall we are prone to wander and we seek to worship other things. It might be that we worship a God of stone or wood. Probably not in this room. It might be that we worship a God of mythology or a God of false religion. Or maybe we worship something else, like a God of success or a God of pleasure, a God of wealth. Or we worship the God of power or fame. The truth is, our hearts are always worshiping something. The words used here for worship and serve are both distinctively religious terms. It's not just that our hearts like this or they like that or it goes after this or it goes after that, but rather our hearts were made to worship and serve and they will worship and serve something, if not the true God. If we are not worshiping the one true God who made us, then we are idolaters. God was gracious in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. Listen to what Paul says about them in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He talks about their good reputation, the Thessalonian believers, their good reputation which has gone out into the world. They themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What a great example the Thessalonians were of turning and exchanging the lies of this world, the lies of Satan, the lies of our flesh, exchanging the lie for the truth, exchanging the idol for the one living true God. Sadly, most of the world is trapped in idolatry of one form or another. Idolatry and false religion are the attempt of mankind to take the eternal, immaterial, everlasting, glorious God and make Him manageable, make Him moldable, conformable, physical, temporal, comprehensible. Idolatry seeks to take the infinite, unchanging God of the Bible and make Him finite, controllable, malleable, and thus package Him in a way that is more in keeping with our own tastes and preferences to create a religion whereby we can easily hit the mark. On our own, by our own effort and our own strength, we can please God. That's idolatry. And so we worship the creature rather than the creator. We worship something other than what is worthy of worship. We worship and serve the effect and not the true cause. We want to praise the painting while ignoring the painter. We want to praise the musical composition 
and forget all about the composer who created it. So it matters what you believe. All religions are not the same. And all religions do not lead to the same end. There is only one way to God. And that is through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul serves here as a great example for what it looks like to believe rightly and to worship rightly. To exchange the lie of adultery for the truth of God, just like the Thessalonians had. Having mentioned idolatry and false religion and how idolaters worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, Paul is now moved to doxology. He's moved to worship just by the mere mention of the name of his creator. Paul immediately interjects that the Creator is the one who is blessed forever, the one who is to be praised forever, praised eternally. And he ends this extemporaneous outburst of praise with the word, Amen, which means truly or so be it. Amen is the enthusiastic response of faith of all those who rightly understand the only worthy object of our worship and devotion is the Creator who made us. Paul's outburst of praise highlights the very foolishness of idolatry's exchange of the truth for a lie. A lie that leads to corruption and dishonor and shame and ultimately death. Four warning signs. These warning signs may leave you wondering, may leave you anxious this morning. How can I know whether or not God has given me over, handed me over to my own lusts that's going to lead me to more and more uncleanness and corruption and ultimately shame and dishonor and separation from God? How can I know if this has happened to me? Friend, if you're worried about that, if you're truly concerned about your soul, I've got good news for you. God hasn't handed you over. God's not done with you yet. In fact, the very fact that you're here this morning is exhibit A for me of the truth that God's not done with you yet. God hasn't handed you over. God is still graciously extending to you mercy and opportunity to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not too late. Today is the day of salvation. There is still time there's still opportunity to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. As great as our sin is, and it's great, God's grace is greater still. So I want to leave you with Paul's confidence in the gospel. Despite the fact that God is actively revealing His wrath in the world today by handing over sinners to themselves, to do greater and greater sin and greater and greater wickedness in the world, which explains so much of why the world is getting worse and worse and worse. Despite the fact that God is revealing His wrath in the world today, He's also revealing His righteousness through the gospel. A righteousness that can be yours by faith in Christ. Listen to what he says, Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You want to leave your life of sin behind, your life of rebellion, your life of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, your life of darkness behind? Then today's the day. Turn and return to the Creator who made you and revealed Himself most fully and truly in His Son, Jesus Christ, who died that you might have life again. Let's pray together. Thank you, great God, for your mercy. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you for taking the initiative, sending your son Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sin. Forgive us, Lord, for running after and serving idols. Forgive us, Lord, for the idols that our hearts even continue to create. Thank you that there is forgiveness with you if we will turn and repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that it's not too late for anyone here in this room. If they're concerned for their soul, then there is reason for hope. If they are here under the sound of the gospel, there is reason for hope. For you have brought them here for such a time as this. May you open their ears, open their eyes, and open their hearts to the mercy and grace that is offered to us in Jesus Christ and his gospel. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.